If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Munch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is Ellen Chesler, and I'm currently a senior fellow at RBI. Today, we are marking International Women's Day coming up on March 8th, an annual celebration formalized by the United Nations in 1975 to call attention to the importance of gender equality, not only as a fundamental moral and legal matter for women, but as an essential element in securing peace, prosperity, and a sustainable future for all. I can't think of a more important day in history to be doing this podcast. We are uh, sadly uh, recording as Russian troops are invading the cities of Ukraine, and we want to uh, share our concern and our deep uh, resolve uh, for the people of independent Ukraine. Um, We are fortunate to have with us today uh, Nolene Heiser from Singapore, author of a new memoir, Beyond Storms and Stars, published last year by Penguin Random House. The book, always thoughtful, inspiring, and elegantly written, tells Nolene's poignant personal story and also describes the important work of the UN in advancing rights and opportunities for, uh, from, for women around the world. This is an enterprise in which women from the global south, like Nolene, have assumed a very powerful leadership role. Um, this women's agenda was hardly a Western project, as so many of its critics and opponents would have us believe. Dr. Heiser launched her career as an executive and as a diplomat at the UN in the 1990s. She was the first executive director from the Global South to lead the UN's development fund for women, known as UNIFEM. Then she um, is widely recognized in in that role for having placed the institution on a sound financial and programmatic footing and for assisting the Security Council in the formulation and implementation of the landmark Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace, and Security, which we will discuss in further detail later. From 2007 to 2014, Dr. Heiser served as Under Secretary General of the UN and as such was the highest ranking Singaporean in the institution during her term. 
In this capacity, she returned to Asia as Executive Secretary of the UN Economic and Social Commission for Asia and the Pacific, known as ESCAP. Currently, Dr. Heiser serves as the UN Special Envoy for Myanmar, where she is working day and night to help resolve the crisis brought on there by the recent military seizure of power, a topic we will only have time to cover briefly today, although it's surely worthy of an entire episode of its own if uh, Nolene would ever have the time to come back. Dr. Heiser holds a BA with honors and a master's uh, degree from Singapore University, PhD from the University of Cambridge. She has received numerous awards for leadership and has pretty much made herself indispensable to the UN system. Thank you, Nolene, um, for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. Let's start with the lovely title of your memoir, Beyond Storms and Stars, the meaning of which you explain on the very last page. Um, I also love that Hannah Arndt quote that opens your book, if we do not know our own history, we are doomed to live it as though it were our private fate. The two references at the beginning, which one is personal and uh, at the end, a larger, uh, you know, looking to larger historical circumstances seem intertwined. Tell us about Beyond Storms and Stars. Oh, Alan, thank you so much. You know, it's such a privilege and a delight uh, to speak with you, especially as we approach International Women's Day. Actually, many people have asked me why the title. I mean, they can understand beyond the storms, but beyond the stars. So perhaps let me just share the word of the 17th century English poet, Edward Young. And he best captures the meaning of beyond the stars. Let me quote him. Too low they build, who build beneath the stars. This uh, within the, uh, the some pivotal moments in history, when we are asked to find the courage, the courage to reimagine our world beyond the stars of destiny, to shape the forces that have impacted and destroyed far too many lives. So, Alan, I turned 74 years this year. So I invite you and our audience to cast our minds back 75 years ago to a pivotal moment in history. The end of, the, of colonialism, the birth of new nations after the Second World War was a transformational turning point. The workings and the intertwining of two major historical forces of discrimination and inequality, colonialism and feudal patriarchy, with their might brought tragic results in terms of human life and physical destruction and compelled nations and women to find better ways of being. So my childhood and young adulthood was shaped by that historical period. So let me start with the women and the community that had a huge influence in the way I lived my life and, my, and the way my understanding evolved. In the book, I mentioned that my mom died when I was six years old. So my life was very much influenced by my grandmother, her wisdom, her resilience, her rebelliousness. In fact, she said to me, marriage is not the way out for you, so you have to develop strong brains. My grandmother embodied the powerful spirit of women who surrounded me in my neighborhood growing up. Strength, kind of resourcefulness. They were not victims of fate 
many of them have had to defy very difficult and unjust circumstances they were born into, from child marriages, from the way they were undervalued in their life and in their work, but they took life into their own hands. And they created life almost out of nothing. They built social networks, sisterhoods that provided mutual aid to each other when they migrated to run away from patriarchal uh, structures. They weave a social fabric for themselves where life could thrive. And they had no expectation that the outside world would help them. And they made their own rules. My father, as in the book, uh, on the other hand, was made vulnerable by the historical circumstances of the time. And after the war, his skills as a traditional medical practitioner were not recognized, and he lost his livelihood, and he allowed himself to be destroyed by the circumstances. Uh, but, but he was not just one of the male figures um, in my life. I also had a very good uh, a male figure, my uncle, who invested in my education. And through him, I developed the joy of gardening and appreciation of beauty, and most important of all, the love of learning. I knew and I experienced injustice, but I also experienced solidarity and organizing. So my first and most fundamental understanding of an institution was not a bureaucracy, but community organizing, mutual aid societies, networks of supportive of support among workers in, in Chinatown, one of the slum areas that I spent six years of my life in, which was also a hotbed of radicalism. And this is where I observed and I imbibed the world of human action. And this is where I realized the power of organization and organizing. I honestly believe that we should all try to create our institutions, not as rigid bureaucracies, but as organic ecosystems that help us realize and enact our collective vision, hope and humanity. Nalina, I could listen to you talk all day what you've just said is so beautiful because it, it really does explain how the roots of your passion for justice, but also your respect for institutions and your uncanny ability to work within their constraints. And obviously there are many constraints to working within the UN bureaucracy, but this balance you've achieved between rebellion, looking for justice, but also comportment using and being able to maneuver the institutions that we have to help us. Um, was so beautifully just explained. Um, I once wrote biography, and so I really, I, I just am overwhelmed by how beautifully you can speak about your life uh, and how moving it is to me to hear. Um, let's move on in your life. You began as a student political activist uh, and then worked as an academic researcher. Let's talk about the circumstances in this period from your education, uh, both in high school and in college and in graduate school, um, that shaped your later work as a diplomat, especially your move from development studies uh, or theoretical concerns about development to the harder slog of practice uh, in policy. Uh, I think that's a trajectory of great interest to the audience for this podcast. Well, I, uh, actually, I have to say that um, one of the big influence uh, or a major influence in my life happened to be my husband, actually. 
Um, he was an tell idiot. us about him a little bit. <laughs> All right. So my husband uh, was an irrepressible spirit, uh, and he had a profound influence on me. And he kept bringing me back to the world of social change. Uh, so let me explain. Um, when I first met him at the age of twenty, uh, and this was when I was a student leader, and I was asked. I was actually uh, on a trip to learn the third way because we were caught in the Cold War between capitalism, communism, and there was a third way of trying to find a middle road. So when I met him, uh, when I was on this journey, uh, to... tell us his name and where he's from. Just all right, start, all right, start. all right. His name is Fan Yuteng, and he's from Malaysia. And I first met him at the age of twenty, uh, and he was twenty-six. But he was already the acting secretary general of the largest opposition party in Malaysia, the youngest and the most vocal member of parliament. Uh, and he was acting secretary general because his secretary general was under political detention. But before he entered politics, he had been a leader of the Malaysian Teachers Union and had co-organized a nationwide strike to demand fairer rights for teachers, including, and this was in 1967. Including equal pay for women teachers, and housing, medical, and pension benefits for all teachers in Malaysia. I don't think he knew the word feminism. He just did it because it was right, uh, the right thing to do, and he wanted uh, the right kind of social change. I also, during my time, you know, in education, I had I developed wonderful women friendships uh, in Cambridge, and that lasted throughout my life. And they, you know, brought. Different aspects uh, from different parts of the world to enrich me. I also, when I worked at the Institute of Development Studies, you know, um, women's That's organizations. Uh, this, uh, no, that was in Sussex. Uh, in, oh, it's Sussex. Uh, yes, where uh, uh, Richard Jolly was the, um, uh, the 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 director at that time, um, Professor Richard Jolly. But that uh, time exposed me to a network of professional academic women, and. They were truly outstanding, and they also. I was so really taken, <laughs> taken up so much <laughs> because they published my research. And at that time, I was working very much on migrant workers, on decent work, on the plantation workers, on women in precarious employment, and and many of them. You know, it was a way uh, of linking the the academic world. <laughs> to the UN. So uh, many of the women were also working at the World Employment Program of the ILO. And obviously, um, you know, uh, they, they found my work interesting. And so suddenly, uh, from being a political activist, uh, be, uh, working at the grassroots, suddenly I found myself actually part of this larger global uh, movement of professional academic uh, a woman, but at that time I also became a mother, Alan, and so it was not uh, very easy uh, uh, to find life-work balance. But but it helped because many times life and work float in the same space, especially during my ten years at the Asia Pacific Development Center in Kuala Lumpur. And I must say that this center actually what came to Kuala Lumpur only because it was shut down. By the Islamic Revolution in 1979 in Tehran, uh, it was actually established at the first World Conference on Women in Mexico, and Elizabeth Reed was the first uh, director. 
but I, I took it over when it was integrated into the Asia-Pacific Development Centre. Now, during this time, I was working very closely with grassroots women activists from all over Asia and the Pacific, and many of them became very, very close friends. And so it was not like I would, when I worked with them, you know, it was work and then I had my life. We all shared work life in the most interesting, integrated way. Life was work and work was life because, you know, we wanted to bring, we were agents of change in the most interesting way and we had fantastic friendship. So I just wanted to stress that um, that period, it was not so difficult. But I also had my aunt, uh, who was a, like a grandmother to my daughters. So whenever I traveled, she would help me to look after them. But she herself was very deeply immersed in community work. She was, in fact, uh, the first Asian mother provincial of the Convent of the Holy Infant Jesus in Malaysia and was later very involved with the theology of liberation. So I learned a lot from her and her, her team as well, a team of wonderful women who were educators, but the way they educated and brought leadership uh, from the ground up, uh, especially in the, in the communities that were so marginalized and where nobody would want to even look at them. Many of them were actually stateless uh, persons in the country. But however, during this period, because of the nature of my husband's political commitment, he was often targeted politically. So I had to find a way of separating his realm of work and mine to protect my intergovernmental work from political interference. And to be honest, that was the hardest thing that I had to do. It was so hard to divide out what we were doing and to try to also keep a home. But you, you became uh, important to the family's livelihood uh, because of your earnings, I gather, and also your work drove you apart geographically so you had to live apart so you really were living as a single mother i mean it's an yeah. astonishing story to those um whom i encourage to buy the book and read the book um beautifully told but also because of your temperament and as you say the many um i think uh your good fortune in having so many uh people to help you both in your family and in your professional family um you were able to balance this and uh and continue the marriage and uh, mm. and be so successful in your career. Um, I I am, you know, so admiring of how you write in the book about how this work with grassroots communities reshaped some of your theoretical ideas about development, but also really educated um, what you did when you uh, were rewarded for your work. Uh, uh, in Asia at, with the grassroots by uh, being plucked to come to New York uh, uh, and um, take on an executive role. We have only limited time, so let's <laughs> rush through a very impactful and very interesting life. There's 10 questions I could ask about what you just said, but I'm going to move on into the 1980s and 90s. Um, as you said, in the 80s, you were first a young staff member with SCAP in Bangkok, working with grassroots communities, um, learning about the relationship between civil society and uh, public diplomacy um, mm -hmm. and financing from um, United Nations agencies. Um, but you were then later plucked in the early 1990s um, to come to the United States and be the first woman from the Global South uh, to run 
uh, UNIFEM, um, mm-hmm. the development agency that had be, be, begun um, to help women um, uh, in the developing world, um, mm-hmm. you are largely credited for having put it on sound financial and programmatic footing. Tell us a little bit more about the lessons you brought to the um, executive chamber from these early experiences. I mean, how how was your worldview shaped and, and did it differ um, from what UNIFEM was doing in the past? I mean, we had wonderful women from the West who started it, the, um, you know, women who, whose names are largely unknown now, but I think we should all uh, do better to make certain that this history is uh, well told and what you do in the book um, so that these extraordinary agents of change um, are not forgotten. Um, women tend to not do as good a job, in my view, at um, at writing their own histories and kind of spinning their own tales. And we need to do, we need to help there. But t- tell us, tell us what it was like to come to New York suddenly from Asia but with you two know, young daughters. Uh, I gather yeah. you lived on Roosevelt Island. I was, I, I, I during did. the book, I, <laughs> I did, I, I did, Helen. I loved your story about how you met the secretary, uh, you met <laughs> Kofi Annan when he became uh-huh. secretary general because you, you took the, the, I don't know if it was the train or the no, tram. No, actually, <laughs> it, it was the tram. It was one of those cable cars that goes across right. the 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 waters but but uh, but Alan I must say that I you know uh, I I built uh, the foundation that the first two uh, executive directors of UNIFEM did huh? uh, they laid very strong foundations for me and we were friends in fact they uh, both of them uh, uh, Pat Schneider and and Sharon Kapling you know they supported me when I was working in the Asia Pacific Development Center so I have my highest respect for them uh, and we became very close friends as well but uh, but uh, 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 Obviously, uh, I mean, as the first woman from outside North America to become the executive director of UNIFEM, my first priority was to bring the perspectives of women from the developing world to shape multilateralism and global governance frameworks of human security, human development, and human rights. So it was indeed uh, the, the most wonderful opportunity to connect the aspirations of local people uh, to global institutions and the international community. And I made sure that the UN and its bureaucracy opened new opportunities to connect uh, community conversations, you know, to global dialogues. I so as the I I as the executive director of the Women's Fund, I always believe that good social policies can only be designed if decision makers engage with real people on the ground listen to their concerns and aspirations and bring women's perspective directly into policy making. And this is essential to ensure that women would no longer be undervalued, undereducated, overworked, underpaid as nations uh, search for new pathways of development because this is from the developing world that was indeed what they were doing. So I began to change the narrative of gender mainstreaming and how change happens and convince donors where to contribute. So I developed a women's development agenda for the 21st century, a linked analysis with practice for the type of change that we would like to see, linked it to the UNIFEM programs, uh, which focused on women's economic empowerment in the globalizing world, women's political empowerment, 
for accountable governance, realizing women's human rights, ending violence against women, and women's role in sustaining peace. This was also the time uh, when it was the end of the Cold War and globalization was very much the part of the agenda. Uh, I, in fact, I, for UNIFEM's program, I made sure that there was no, that, that we understood that there was no transformation without women's empowerment. Because women, the, one, the ones that I worked with, the ones I grew up with, I knew that they, they transformed the context of their lives by becoming agents of change. In other words, they were not victims, they, the, and, and, but they were people who understood the textured and the intricate understanding of what needs to change. So I, I also understood that uh, for those who want to create change within a system as complex as the UN, must also engage leadership at multiple levels, linking realities on the ground to high levels of decision making. So I place a lot of emphasis on collaborative leadership. And I provided the platform for cooperation with change makers, not just from the grassroots, but also from government, civil society, and private and private sector, connecting with one another to find innovative solutions to very concrete problems, and also to forge collaborative uh, uh, friendships and 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 also the type of of, of relationships that I saw as a extremely um, valuable and and also because uh, many of them uh, were donors so I was able to then find the financial resources for implementation as well so what did I learn from all this work I have learned that women leaders especially if you have joined an institution cannot wait to get our male-dominated institutions right before we act and our collective action for global governance start by creating issue-specific coalitions that can come together locally and globally to develop collaborative solutions to transnational problems through politically smart strategizing from both non-state and state actors. And that was what I did. Well, you've, you've kind of anticipated my next question, which was to say that you know, it, it, you, you've talked about how there was an empowering framework after the end of the Cold War to realize the vision of the United Nations after so many years of, uh, uh, of neglect. Uh, you know, the Cold War had kind of hijacked the UN, um, but suddenly, uh, you know, it, it was just a contest between we may be back there with Russia and the United States, but suddenly there was an opening for the kind of social and economic rights and bold thinking um, that are at the foundation of the institution's mission. Um, going back to the earliest days, Eleanor Roosevelt and so many mm -hmm. women and men from um, the newly independent countries um, who dreamed big at the beginning. Um, yeah. But what you haven't talked about, but you do in the book, and you do it so beautifully that I was going to ask you to go into it a little more, although it's difficult uh, in a short time, is that while these aspirations grew bold again, uh, we were living through a time of uh, neoliberalism in terms of economic policies, um, mm. the huge burden of structural adjustment policies mm. um, on the developing world's nations. Um, 
So there were never the resources developed to realize rights, you know, mm. I mean, not mm. to set, not to speak of unforeseen mm. circumstances, wars, mm. the AIDS crisis, uh, yes. other public health and refugee crises mm. um, that we never even thought about uh, when you and I both, you were there in a leadership role. I was just uh, there with an NGO. We're at Beijing, uh, thinking big in 1995. So Give us a little bit more concrete examples of how you dealt with the resource problems. You got to UDFM, there was no money, you found that there was a budget crisis. You somehow didn't want to become a vassal of the UND, UN Development Program, good as Mark Malik Brown may have been as a leader of that program. He's a friend and a person I admire greatly, but I can certainly understand that you wanted to find your own resources. Tell us just where you found them, just a few concrete examples. Oh. Actually, uh, I have to, uh, to actually say that having feminist women in the system uh, of their development cooperation uh, made a big difference. They were able to help me mobilize. Having uh, a history of um, partnerships with um, women leaders, uh, especially those at the ground, from student days that became ministers, that was extremely helpful. Uh, being able uh, to uh, harness, so I learned how to harness relationships. Uh, and, and, and I must say that uh, one of the best relationships I had was actually um, with the Dutch uh, feminist uh, leaders. Uh, a very close friend, uh, she became a very close friend. I didn't know her before that, but we worked together, you know, for example, on the issue of international migration. And she, uh, uh, um, her name is, uh, was um, Gerche Laklama. She, she has passed away, but she was an amazing friend. And these women had access to resources from the development agencies of the Scandinavian countries, or and they began to invest because explaining to our audience, UNIFEM, like many of the agencies of the United Nations, um, doesn't necessarily have a budget. You have to go out and raise your budget. Uh, it, it, the the country, countries are not assessed to yes. give a certain amount. Um, you raise yeah. your budget from... Yeah. Yeah. willing countries and you were able to build these relationships working yes. inside the system exactly. that, that's, i just want to yeah. get yes more of the yes. nitty-gritty for our audience here yes um, you know you know uh, it was uh, i must say that when i first came in i was in such a state of shock because uh, firstly i i thought i was coming in for the fourth world conference on on women and mm -hmm. i thought i was heading the uh, women's fund that had quite a large uh, percentage of the um, resources. And I found that uh, Peck Schneider, the first executive director, had only one million. And then, and she had to, uh, she, she got that out of the, uh, some of the resources that were left over. So it started off as a voluntary fund that was left over from the First World Conference on women and Peck Schneider was good enough to say you know what it has to be a development fund and then she started raising resources I am not sure what level she she reached but by the time it was Sharon's uh, turn it was about 13 million but she was supporting women's organizing for all these conferences and so the organization got into debt I mean I, I just felt I called it a crisis of demand uh, other people uh, those in the system called it a crisis of existence because we were in so much debt that we almost disappeared. 
But I decided, no, I, this is a moment whereby we actually have to say that this fund is so critical and that we know what is happening at the ground. We know how to move agendas. We know how to mobilize and we know the type of change and we can actually deliver. And we also know how, how the UN will be working uh, because it was at the time of UN reform, how we will have to work in the system so that it is not just us uh, bringing the change, but we, but we will be make sure that the UN as a system, especially the UN at the ground level, will actually deliver on the Beijing platform for action. And I think because I was able to show that, and uh, with confidence, and I got all my staff to show what we had as resources worth investing in. And so eventually, I must say that we started off um, eventually addressing the, 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 the debt issue. But towards the end, we were able, by the time I left, we had about 120 million a year to so, work yeah. on, on four, I mean, yeah, four It's an extraordinary story in terms of mobilization of resources. And I think it's important to point out to the audience that today, you know, we take it for granted mm. that uh, the heads of development institutions, you know, the World Bank, the IMF, uh, all of the bilateral institutions understand the importance of women's rights as an element of securing peace, prosperity, and a sustainable future for all. I mean, Hillary Clinton made you know women's rights as human rights, and human rights is the right of every woman into a mm. global mantra. Um, mm. But we're old enough, sadly, to remember when the men kind of laughed at this. I mean, they, yeah. you know, development didn't work for the first. Mm. 25 years or after uh, mm. World War II, because in mm. fact, the money went to a few uh, male leaders of developing world countries and wasn't inclusive, didn't worry about who was working, you know, uh, mm. societies where women did so mm. much of the work in agriculture mm. and elsewhere, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. were not getting development funds to help those sectors. They were getting development funds mm -hmm. to build mm. uh, infrastructure that Mm. you know, wound up not trickling down to, in mm. fact, improve the lives of, of countries. And um, mm. having somebody like you in charge with your grassroots experience helped change this understanding. And I, I think mm. that's what your book so beautifully explains, uh, because, in fact, you have the ability to, to speak theoretically about all of this, having been well-educated uh, in development, but also to relate your practical experience and how uh, your theories were influenced by what you saw on the ground and how mm -hmm. you were open to changing your ideas. And um, it's what I really love about the book. Um, unfortunately, again, we have to rush through all this, but just because we've mentioned Beijing, uh, which was, of course, the fourth in a series of 20 years of uh, UN focus on women, something mm -hmm. I think is probably the institution's really one of its most significant achievements, which is mm -hmm. not fully understood, um, particularly by its critics. Um, mm -hmm. it just can you speak a little bit about what you think the uh, takeaways, the significant takeaways from Beijing have been? Mm -hmm. um, where have, what have we achieved? Has there been progress? Where have we failed? Um, where are you disappointed? Um, mm -hmm. How has Beijing influenced uh, the framework for development that now guides the UN, the, the Sustainable Development Goals? Mm -hmm. Well, the Fourth World Conference on 
on women in 1995 with the theme of equality, development and peace has provided the momentum for the world community, government, civil society, men and women to actually unite in solidarity to reimagine and to reshape globalization through the eyes and experiences of women. Because just we, all these series of UN conferences came about after the end of the Cold War, obviously, and the beginning of the age of globalization. And, and, uh, but there was another kind of globalization that was taking place. And this was a time when women's global activism was at its heights forming connections across deep divides because of these UN conferences to shape a global agenda, right? So um, basically, uh, for women, uh, uh, what was most significant was that, that they stressed that equality, development, and peace, they are intertwined. And they were very clear that women wanted nothing less than the transformation of the 21st century to ensure that our daughters had the same opportunities as our sons, where women could realize their rights to quality education, employment and healthcare, equal inheritance, legal protection and citizenship, and to be free from violent conflicts, harassment, and sexual violence. But they also knew that they must be the primary agent of this transformation. And hence, the outcome that they sought from the Fourth World Conference on Women was a global commitment for the empowerment of all women, and it came out as a paging platform for action. And, and this was an extremely important platform. It was the, one of the most powerful platforms because it was based so much uh, on the mobilization of women, and also uh, it was one where uh, women were able to seize the opportunity for change in women's lives, but also to the quest to focus on the quest to achieve the transformation needed on a global scale to sustain that change. So that, you know, we, we, we talked about change at the grassroots, change at the national level, but this was a global transformation and that was what uh, is and, so special. Uh, and uh, for all of it. the, for all that uh, still needs to be done, there has been a revolution in girls' education, not mm -hmm. particularly at the primary level, not and we're making huge gains at the secondary level and mm -hmm. uh, in university education for women as well in the developing world. Um, you know, there are more, very few people know that in the Middle East, there are more women graduating from college than men today, exactly. even though um, mm -hmm. we've made extraordinary gains in reproductive health and in health, uh, despite the setbacks in countries like our own, but let's not even waste our time talking about the United States and reproductive health. But the rest of the world, we just mm -hmm. saw major gains in Latin America this week uh, in, in countries uh, like Mexico and, and now uh, mm -hmm. Colombia. Mm -hmm. um, we have had a transformation in women's leadership. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I, we still complain and the United mm -hmm. States is low in the rankings, but um, in countries like your own and many others, there are many, many more women serving in parliament, shaping policy. And as I said, controlling resources and development agencies and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so that uh, for all the doom and gloom, uh, mm -hmm. The world looks very different from the one you and I, we're the same age, came to evasion mm -hmm. uh, um, and mm -hmm. tried to change. And so mm -hmm. I don't think we, we can uh, rest on our laurels by any means. But I also, uh, I share your view that 
uh, we have made some progress and we need to now continue to build on the progress we've made. Um, the, I think the hardest progress is in employment, uh, but that's because of circumstances much larger than gender. Um, mm -hmm. The world has, uh, you know, experienced, you know, vast inequalities of wealth. Mm -hmm. We haven't been able to develop the kind of social uh, safety network for people mm -hmm. and raise mm -hmm. wages. Labor is, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, under attack. Um, but we, we need to work on that. Um, and I know you... Um, I, I want to talk about two other things, however, before we have to conclude in, in about five minutes. Um, mm -hmm. You are very well known um, for having helped the Security Council shape UN Resolution 1325, mm -hmm. another milestone in the history of human rights uh, and of mm -hmm. women's rights. Mm -hmm. um, why was it so important to move the agenda from the human rights and development a framework, you know, overseen by the General Assembly into the realm of peace and security governed by the all-important UN Security Council, which we know is from this week, uh, the ability to get consensus because Russia vetoed. Um, it's mm -hmm. a very difficult organization to work within, but um, you got it to pass this extraordinarily important resolution. Um, what progress have you seen in achieving uh, 1325 and in, uh, in, in transforming women's role as peacemakers um, and mm -hmm. countries' understanding of mm -hmm. the role that gender plays in peace and particularly, um, you know, in violence too. I mean, the, the role mm -hmm. that gender plays in war uh, through mm -hmm. sexual violence. Where are your disappointments again? Can mm -hmm. you give us a quick summary of where we are on 1325? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Ellen, the women's peace and security agenda is a victory. It's a huge victory for women's leadership and the mobilization huh, to bring about transformation in the peace and security sector, which is a very well-guarded traditional male bastion. So since my, my appointment, UNIFEM had provided assistance to women in conflict-affected countries and supported their participation in local peace processes. But I have to tell you, our efforts were marginalized and local women's groups organizing in conflict-affected countries were not taken seriously at all um, by, by the major UN entities uh, involved with peace and security, not just in the Security Council. But in the aftermath of the genocide and in the pursuit of justice for women whose lives had been torn apart by it in Rwanda and in Bosnia, the heart of Europe, UNIFEM worked with many women leaders and organizations in Africa and beyond to urgently build a global movement to recognize rape and sexual violence as a weapon of war and genocide. And I was then requested to lead the effort in the UN to establish an international legal framework to deal with rape as a war crime and to establish sets of legally binding norms and standards specifically on women and armed conflict. Now, we spent almost a year convincing the members of the Security Council that conflicts occur because of deeply fractured societies, extreme economic and social inequalities, entrenched kind of discrimination, and political systems that excluded pe uh, people's voices, fragile governance systems, and rampant corruption. So if we want sustainable peace, we need to go beyond the military approaches to one that addresses the root of conflict, which are multidimensional, 
involving the economic, the social, and the political forces. And we spent months in discussion with Security Council members and supportive member states. Our message was very clear. Resolving conflicts, peace building, and state building must be addressed within a holistic framework that integrates human security, human development, and human rights to deal with the social fractures that feed conflicts. We shared how women leaders whom we supported were working on the ground, building inclusive peace processes that are more likely to, last, to lead to lasting peace. And we had to convince Security Council members that in their own self-interest, a more balanced group involved in peacemaking can better address the societal grievances that have escalated into conflict. So on the first day of this millennium, uh, 24th of October 2000, half a century after the birth of the UN Charter, the, the Security Council finally adopted a Security Council Resolution 1325, the Women, Peace and Security Legal Framework, consisting of four pillars, prevention, protection, participation, peace building, and recovery. And it broke the silos between human rights, development, peace and security, and it addressed sexual violence as a war crime. It also supported women's meaningful participation in peace and recovery and promoted women's rights to inheritance, property and land as crucial education, healthcare and employment as crucial for sustaining peace and in the rebuilding of societies. And I must say that the Security Council finally realized that women's meaningful participation and leadership are important not only to ensure respect for women's human rights, but fundamental to, for building a, a solid foundation for peaceful and just societies, and that gender equality is a game changer in securing sustainable peace and development. You know, it, it, it is so interesting to me. I mean, sadly, we don't have enough time to talk about it. Obviously, since this work, you have headed up SCAP and, um, you know, worked on building more equity and uh, prosperity and sustainable development in Asia. You are now representing the Secretary General in very delicate negotiations uh, in Myanmar. Um, I, you know, one can only hope as we look at the conflicts in Europe. I mean, you know, never did I believe uh, having been born as you were in the shadow of World War II and with a grandmother who had lost siblings in that war, um, sadly. So I, you know, I was aware of it from the time I was quite young. Um, mm -hmm. Never did I believe that I would live to see another ground war in, in Ukraine, um, where my family has roots. But I, mm -hmm. honestly, uh, you know, possibly maybe out of this, you know, you, you don't hear about the women of Ukraine. They're being mm -hmm. told to uh, flee or guard mm -hmm. their children. But um, mm -hmm. They are such an important part of the development of Ukraine, of the economy of Ukraine. It's mm. obviously controlling that economy that is motivating um, mm. President Putin. He needs the economic uh, energy uh, and the spirit of Ukraine to uh, infuse more, you know, opportunity in Russia. I mean, you know, although I don't, I think he's taking on more than he's going to be able ever to. Mm. He's biting off more than he can chew, as they say, mm. uh, because. These people do not seem like they're going to be easily contained, even if they win militarily. Um, mm -hmm. But I hope that all of the 
theory that you have just so beautifully uh, explained that women have added to international relations, the feminist aspect of foreign policy will be part of the peace process, um, yeah. both in Myanmar as well as in um, in in Ukraine, I, I don't know if you have two minutes more. Yeah. Uh, we can we have about two minutes to speak yeah. about Myanmar. Uh, yeah. If you can say anything, I think. Uh, but again, maybe you can come yeah. back some other time to talk about yeah. that. Yes, I think I would just stick to the work of of Security Council 1325 because you know what it taught me that although the UN was founded on principles of peace and human rights, principles are not enough in a world where the politics of hatred, division, violence, corruption, and exclusion permeate so many of our societies. Be it in 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 the you know in Myanmar and so on, right? But by working on, the, on many of these conflicts, I have learned that we must be attentive to the reality that many powerful actors hold values that go against those enshrined in the UN Charter, and that gender equality actually has become a battleground as well for our normative future. Of course. And I just want to end on one very strong note, and I just want to stress, Alan, that the human drama is still unfolding. And history is within the power of women to shape. Well, amen to that. And um, I cannot thank you enough. Um, I only wish that when during your time in New York, we had gotten to know each other even better. Uh, I was always aware of your work, um, but uh, didn't have the good fortune to actually get to know you. So I'm very grateful for this opportunity, uh, as I know our audience is. And I wish you a great good fortune in your very, very... Um, important role in Myanmar. Uh, thank you, Nolene. Everybody, please do um, get a copy of her book, Beyond Storms and Stars, published by Random House Penguin. Her personal story is inspiring, as are her policy insights. Remember everyone to rate and subscribe to International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and App Podcasts. Um, thanks to Oswaldo Mina Aguilar for his technical assistance today, and to Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for our program. Um, my name is Ellen Chester again, and I thank you all for joining us and look forward to having you for future episodes of International Horizons. Thank you.